As the world rapidly transitions to low carbon, the energy transition landscape becomes increasingly exciting, but also increasingly uncertain. With rapid change comes disruption and an inherent change in risk preferences and mitigation strategies. To discuss some of the most pressing risk factors and the potential implications for the market, I'm joined by Charles Wilsoncroft, partner at HKA. I'm Pamela Larg, and you're listening to the Energy Transitions Podcast. Thank you for joining us, Charles. When we talk about risk, it's a broad term. And when you consider the current state of energy markets, the cost of financing, supply chain constraints, it's really quite a tumultuous time for investors, for projects, etc. It's a good time to be thinking about risk. Charles, over to you. Yes. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, there's never a bad time to be talking about risk. And I think this is maybe the, the starting point. Obviously, there, there are a few things happening at the moment, uh, which we'll get into in, in, in a little bit. But ultimately, developing, delivering, closing out projects in the energy sector are, are all about the understanding, the allocation and the management of risk. Because ultimately, the delivery of projects, the delivery of schemes, uh, all relates around the management and mitigation, the commercial allocation of risks throughout uh, the sector, the supply chain, the financing, uh, the contractors, the developers, uh, and of course, the users at the end. Risk has always been something in my mind that has never been properly grabbed hold of. I think in, you know, we, we go through cycles as a sector, as an industry, of having slightly more appreciation and understanding of risk, which brings in certain ways of looking at things and, and maybe changing the way projects are delivered or, or contracted. Uh, but very often commercial concerns come into play, uh, which then restrain and pull down those, uh, those kind of proactive uh, assessments of risk, management of risk, uh, which, which then brings us kind of background full circle to a more traditional, safer method of delivery. And what I mean by that is that ultimately the, the structure that we see around the development and implementation of energy projects is by and large driven by uh, the funding constraints, the funders, and, and that may be funding that is developed through uh, the, the circular reuse of money that comes from end users, or it might be from private uh, investment, or it might be from development funding from uh, oil investigation, oil exploitation, or many other areas besides. But ultimately, it's that funding that tends to constrain or restrain how risk is looked at and allocated through the supply chains. Now, you're absolutely right in that at the moment, uh, we have a very, very interesting and, and in some instances, very tragic uh, aspect uh, outlook in the, in the geopolitical uh, sphere of things. We have a very unique situation where we have the political and public drive for renewable energies for movement away from carbon producing technologies or at least mitigating carbon producing technologies the more traditional technologies so we're going into a, a very new technological base to get around certain projects and certain issues and problems we have with uh, climate change and obviously there's, there's now a very very strong public and governmental support for that a lot however that is aligned with the current situation in ukraine uh, and what's happening there 
and various other constraints which are putting constraints on where because ultimately although there is a transition that's happening and that is speeding up and that is growing to uh, carbon-free technologies we still have an underlying base of a lot of reliance on fossil fuels fuels that you get out of the ground and as we know a lot of that currently comes from russia and due to sanctions and what's happening in ukraine what that's doing is then effectively pushing up the price of other oil and gas markets and areas which then is making a bit more commercially viable for the development or the the continued reliance on those which is then in itself hampering the move to uh, you know clean fuels and and uh, cleaner use of technology on a very broad uh, subject added to that especially with the energy transition and the move to renewables we're seeing two key things the issue of new technologies which brings its own risk but also um, a vast ramping up of need you know so if you look at just say for example the uh, the offshore wind sector in the north sea that is to grow um you know exponentially greater you know we to develop in the next five years what we've developed in the last 15 20 years uh, more so in 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 the north sea and at the moment there simply isn't the infrastructure to deal with that there aren't the materials or the the process materials there isn't the cabling cabling um, uh, manufacturing capability at the moment to uh, supply all these the uh, the fabrication of the the turbines and the motors the distribution of that the skill uh, skilled workforce to install these to build these so th- there are huge pressures all the way across the supply chains the cost of materials is going through the roof at, at the moment which is especially due to what's happening in in Ukraine and the cost of not just steel, it's, it's more the raw materials that go into steel and very specialised metals. So, you know, electrical grade steel and things like that are really going up exponentially. So the risk landscape, I mean, as I said, I know it's a bit of a long winded way to answer, but risk is always absolutely not not just something to think about, but ultimately the management of risk uh, is, is always the, the fundamental essence that runs through all these developments, which needs to be grabbed hold of properly. And at the moment, those risks and new risks are, you know, it's almost that there are new risks, which is which is what you would expect through so the energy transition. But they're then being compounded by these other geopolitical events that are happening. So it really is a doubling down on on the need to look at and understand and, and have a kind of grown up conversation about risk and how it can be managed effectively. Thank you for that, Charles. It does indeed seem to be a perfect storm. You know, it's about understanding these risks, like you say, having these adult conversations. And I think as human beings, we tend to have this bias towards perhaps, I don't want to say not being as prepared as we should be, but perhaps not uh, considering worst case scenarios in terms of our risk mitigation. And right now we've got issues with geopolitical crises, we've got uh, commodity prices, uh, the cost of financing, it's really coming together in quite a an alarming way. So we see obviously people are more risk aware, but you said that this is a good thing. So can you just talk us through how are you seeing companies, investors prioritizing risks and maybe adapting to some of these challenges uh, in the market at the moment? And please feel free to to talk about some of the data that, that HKA has available and what the trends are that you are noticing at the moment. You're absolutely right in, in, in it being a perfect storm at the moment. And and the one thing to kind of 
throw in there it's it's obviously been talked a lot about over the last couple of years and we haven't mentioned it yet is is the, the kind of shadow of covid which is another once in a lifetime event that is just kind of really turned everything upside down on its head and between that mixed in with the energy transition which is this, this huge i mean it's an energy revolution really rather than an energy transition it's almost akin to the the industrial revolution you know or the the movement to steam um, or the mechanisation of, uh, of of farmland, and going through that process is always going to drive innovation, which is the important thing to to take from this. You know, we are generally innovative beings, and we come up with solutions to to work through with problems. We're certainly seeing in the energy transition, the energy energy revolution, that that is the case. In respect of data, yes, you're absolutely correct in that. You know, we we, we have a a program called our Crux Causation Program, which uh, effectively looks at the the reasons for claims uh, or, the, or for cost overruns and time overruns on all manner of projects, uh, largely energy projects, but but all construction co- type contracts, manufacturing type pro- uh, contracts, and where we can identify and look at the different kind of comparative causations and and where the risks actually are experienced. Uh, or, or encountered in the delivery phase of, of projects. And what that allows us to do is provide that information to all members of the supply chain, so from the funders, so they can properly understand and see where things may go wrong on the project, obviously contractors, so they can properly manage and be a reactive as they're delivering these items alongside the developers, but also the supply chains, so they can understand how these fit together as well. I mean, you, you talk about trends, I mean, as you'd understand, in respect of trends, the two key issues that have come up in the last kind of two, now three years, are the, the almost discrete issues of COVID, which had huge impacts on both material transfer, equipment delivery, but also crucially the movement of labour, the movement of skilled uh, resource cross-border. It had, it had a, a massive effect. Uh, and then obviously Ukraine, what's happening in that area, which is having a knock-on effect to the global commodity prices. They're the, probably the, the two main things that have stood out. But what I would say is, and this, this is something that people seem to forget, is that, yes, we currently have and have recently experienced these key issues, but everyone seems to be talking about these and taking their eye off the fact to say, well, actually, we had lots of issues pre-COVID, lots of issues in delivery pre-Russia and Ukraine. And those things are still there and those things will continue once these these things get sorted out. Um, So issue, you know, prevalent things, the reasons for kind of cost overruns. And this is across all energy projects and it's pretty consistent and it's it's kept pretty consistent over the the, the four or five years we've been developing the crux data. You know, the change management, change in scope effectively is the biggest driver of cost and time overruns in, in energy delivery projects. So what that means is where a developer or employer has started work and for whatever reason has changed that. Now you could say, well, of course, well, they're changing that in reaction to geopolitical items, they're, re- they're changing that in respect of to, to react to current events. Well, that is some of it, but actually when you drill down into the data, what we see is it really does boil down to in many, many more cases than not, is simply the case that the employer, for whatever reason, went into, or the the developer, whoever's promoting the project, hasn't developed their design 
to a sufficient level of maturity prior to agreeing to take it that next step forward. So then you've got to think, well, why is that the case? So I'm sure there are there are myriad reasons as to why that might be a good position to be. However, what strikes me is that there, you know, there are obviously reasons to commence a project without knowing exactly what you're going to build. But there are ways to mitigate that. There are ways to contract that properly. In the energy sector, you see you have a lot of EPC type jobs, a lot of uh, turnkey, um, not lump sum, not, not fixed price, but, but nearly fixed price type contracts, the principle of fixed price contracts, which is great as long as you don't then change the scope, as long as you don't then try and change something. Because what that does is that, you know, those kind of contracts are not designed to be changed. They're not designed to give good value to the employer or the developer when changing those. And yet they do continue to be changed. Now, what our data shows actually is that the comparison between a more flexible type of contract, like some kind of remeasurable contract, as opposed to an EPC contract, well, you do see a difference. You do see a drop in the time and value claimed between the two, but only a, a difference of about 10%. So you would expect a wholesale change between the two where the developer, client, employer has a lot more flexibility under one of the more flexible contracts. Well, that's fine. And they've built in the ability to flex and move and get good value back. Whereas with an EPC, we're still seeing almost the same amount of change uh, and influence by an employer under an EPC contract. But of course, it's not a structure that's designed to do that. So then you say, well, is that the right method to procure? Is that the right method to contract? You know, are you actually um, looking at this from a best value point of, way, point of view? Or are you crucially as an employer going into this, understanding what your risk is? All too often I speak to employer organisations who still have in mind that an EPC contract is a fixed fee and don't come back and we're not going to ever pay any more than that, which is just mind blowing because clearly that's not the case. And the facts and the numbers show that's not the case. Um, you can wrap up as much risk as you can, but there's no such thing as an all risk contract. So that's just one of the areas. I mean, I could literally talk all day about this. You know, there are lots of other areas. Um, second most prevalent causation of additional cost and time is poor management, poor contract management by both parties, but predominantly by the uh, employer or developer organisation. And this is something that, that again, runs through all sectors to, to varying degrees, some more or less, but it's very, very high in the energy sector. And what that demonstrates to me is that simply employer organisations and contractors are not sufficiently and appropriately staffing, resourcing their contracts, their delivery programs with sufficient numbers of skilled and experienced capable staff. Now that is possibly, you can understand that to one degree in respect of the contractors, especially if they're on an EPC contract, especially if they're on a lump sum contract because they have a fixed, they certainly start off with thinking they have a fixed pot and they try to increase their margins and then they throw lots of people at it. But ultimately, that will come back and bite them in the in the end, because the, if the systems, the processes, the, the contractual mechanisms aren't maintained, if the programs aren't properly dealt with, reacted to on a, on a proactive basis, then what happens is they get themselves in a hole and then you go down the claims route. And in the flip side, very often you see employers and even, you know, even quite educated employers who will go into a situation, they still think, well, OK, well, I'm just going to give all the risk to the contractor so I can just put a skeleton crew on managing this. Well, no, you can't, because, again, the proof of the pudding is that 
there will be contractual management having to happen, your own programming. You have to be reactive to what the contractor's doing and deal with these things as they develop. And if you haven't got the staff on board, if you haven't got the people who can make the decisions and are educated and competent and experienced, then again, the system grinds to a halt, everything falls apart, and then you have huge claims and you have disputes and it goes to court and all these horrible things at the end, much of which can be avoided if projects are appropriately staffed on both sides. So then you've got to ask the question, well, is the reason why projects are not appropriately staffed the fact that there's not enough money in the job, both at the employer level and the contractor level, in which case, again, it comes back to what I said right at the very beginning, is that all of this generally cascades from where the money comes from. It's all to do with risk, but ultimately risk is to do with who takes the responsibility for that, which has a monetary value in one way or another. It all always comes back to money. And as we see with, with supply chains and supply chains being squeezed, it all rolls down from the top. You know, you can't do this sort of thing bottom up. You've got to make sure that you have from the top adequately resourced, i.e. financed projects that run down, that then have grown up ways of looking and allocating risk with the parties who are best placed to manage it, which then rolls down into the various supply chains and ensure you get that cash that goes through the supply chains. Because ultimately, you know, Lord Denning in England said in the 70s, cash flow is the lifeblood of the industry and that, that never changed. And if you don't have cash flow running through, then that's what makes industries fall apart. And that's what makes companies go out of business. That's what makes projects fail. That's what makes disputes happen. You've got to have adequate cash flow. And I don't mean you just pay everyone everything they ask for, but you've got to have competent, experienced people who are able to make assessments of what is due at, at the correct times. So everything, you know, it's the kind of oil that makes it all work, the grease that makes it all work. Uh, and if you don't properly understand and set those systems up and it goes to all levels of supply chain, then it grinds to a halt. And that's where we're going. And, and we've got better as a, an industry and a sector. But in the last five years, it's kind of kind of contracting background again. It feels to me that people are being slightly less open than they used to be, even though there's a lot of talk about new contracting methods and collaboration. I just wonder in reality, how much of that is actually flowing through at the moment. Charles, what's fascinating for me is these are not new issues. This is not a, a novel conversation. And I'm, I'm struggling to understand how is it that we haven't moved beyond some of these sort of fundamental, should I say, pitfalls within contracting? How do we move on from that? How do we become more aware of these pitfalls and, and mitigate them more effectively? What are your thoughts on this? It's a very good question. And it's a very difficult issue to wrestle with. As I mentioned, there are always conversations and there have been a lot of conversations, especially in the kind of early noughties. There was a lot of discussion and, and there still is, you know, you know, especially when you get out of the energy sector and look at, say, the, the civil engineering sector in the UK. It's a very, very open discussion. Uh, and as I'm sure you're aware, in the late 90s into the noughties, we developed the, the NEC family of contracts, which was seen as being, um, you know, a kind of new way to contract and, you know, actually, you know, things should be more collaborative. And now there's a, a collaboration contract that goes with the new NEC version four. Um, so there's lots of discussion and there's lots of goodwill when it comes to it. But what seems to happen in my experience, and this is just what I, I see, and sometimes, you know, th there are some really good examples 
of collaborative working. I mean, I know that the Sydney Water, which is a, a really big scheme, that utility basically said, look, we're going to go for a proper collaborative approach on this and we're going to do a kind of root and branch review of everything. And, and that seems to be working. And I think the reason why that's working is because they said, look, we, we're going to completely go back to basics and look at how we procure every aspect of it, which cascades down through all of the supply chain. But again, that was led by ultimately the employer company. And they realised that they had to do it and they had to put in place structures that didn't just go down to their kind of tier one contractors that flowed down all the way through the supply chain. So they had a complete look at and said, basically set up a completely new structure, which is working very well. If you do it just in part, if you try and do it or you just try and say you're going to do it, it just won't work because there's always going to be some part of that relationship some part of the tree which doesn't want to do that because they say well i don't want to do this so i'm going to protect myself commercially or, or whatever the case, which is understandable you know we, you know as a company as an entity you're always going to look to do what puts you as a company in the best position so if other people in a supply chain are doing one thing and you're not obliged to do that you're not tied into anything and you can kind of maybe do something to make sure your company is going to be safe and secure then it's the natural way to do that because you as a company probably aren't that influential, if it's, especially if it's a small part of the supply chain. Whereas if you've got the financier, the developer, the employer who's saying, no, we're going to we're going to kind of rip all this up. We're going to build a new structure and we're going to kind of enforce it all the way down the supply chain. And everyone's going to be on board with this. That's the first thing you've got to do. And if you don't do that, I don't think you're going to get success in it. And it feels a bit funny because it's kind of like forcing collaboration, which is a bit of an oxymoron. But I think that's the way you've got to kind of do it. And then the second thing, of course, is the behavioural side of it. So you can set up a structure around something, but if the behaviours aren't there, then it, it kind of goes out the window. And I think we've all seen, I've certainly seen many, many times where you have contracting mechanisms, you have workshops, you have all these, these good intentions and people say, yeah, we're going to do it different on this. You know, this is going to be great. But it gets to the crunch. It gets to the, the money. When money really has to move one way or another, that's when people go, oh, hang on a second. Or someone senior in one organisation goes well hold on a second why are we doing that you know do we have to do that we can't afford to do that because we're going to take a hit and then all of a sudden the sides become hunkered down and then you get into this more traditional approach of doing it now one of the ways to get around that is to get the behavioral buy-in from all parties so let's say you, you are you're a, a developer on, on an ng project or let's say you're kind of building an offshore wind farm you say right okay this is the structure and i'm going to make sure i can enforce this kind of collaborative you're all going to sign up to this but part of your process of engaging the supply chain into that has to be an assessment in part of the experience the buy-in and the capabilities of being involved in that kind of collaborative approach if that makes sense so you've, you've got to genuinely believe that all the people in the supply chain are actually going to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, because it's very easy to talk the talk. Charles, if I can just interrupt you for a moment. So it sounds like we need to change the culture of, of risk or how we think about and approach risk uh, within these projects and contracts. That is quite a monumental task uh, that you seem to be describing. Am, am I understanding this correctly? I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and as, as we mentioned, you know, the, the issue of risk, allocation of risk 
and management and ownership of risk underpins all of this. Absolutely. And yet, I think that there is a way to do that. There, like I said, there have been models set up. There have been good examples of it, but you have to go root and branch all the way to the beginning. But coming on to that point, I actually see this and what we're going through at the moment with the energy revolution and the other factors that are affecting things at the moment. Because we've got such a whole scale shift of how the industry is developing, where the new technologies are coming from, it's very much out with the old, in with the new. It's a perfect opportunity. In fact, it's the opportunity to not just think of it on a technological basis. People think about the energy transition, they think about technology. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the bog standard way of looking at it. It's not oil and gas, it's solar, it's wind, it's hydrogen, it's all these other exciting things. But that's just part of it. We have to also take this opportunity to say, it's not just that, we're also looking at the finance side, we're looking at how we deal with risk, we're looking at how we enter into contracting relationship. So yes, we need that revolution in the commercial side as well as in the technical side. And it would be such a shame as a sector if we don't utilise what's happening now with the energy transition to completely change the way we do things, the way we do business. You know, we change the way we drive cars, we change the way we do work, we change the way we generate energy, we change the way we deal with people at the moment. We've changed everything apart from how we contract with people and, and talk about risk and deal with things in a grown up approach. Feels to me wrong. You know, we've got all this this amazing progress and change in all these ways. And we, 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 we're really struggling to get out of this kind of silo mentality. But it's always going to be difficult because, you know, as I mentioned, you're always going to have the issue of the liability or the, the, the kind of the financial returns of any one company. So in which case, ultimately, you've got to make sure that the eventuality of something going wrong in delivering a project is adequately covered because ultimately someone's got to pay yeah there's, there's got to be some kind of way to, some kind of mechanism i mean look at covid one of the things that happened with covid is that you know this is a very broad generalization but most contracts or a lot of contracts dealt with it as force majeure under their contracts if indeed it got into that bracket well force majeure most often than not doesn't give an entitlement to cost gives an entitlement to time not all the time but largely i would say so you've got the situation where contractors were being hit by covid they can get an extension to the time to complete but they can't get any recovery of costs or it's very difficult for them to get a recovery of costs but of course there is a huge cost that goes with it you know they have the resource cost they have the additional cost of bringing in materials or air freighting materials or whatever the case may be huge increases in cost now but how can that come through there's no kind of contractual mechanism to do that. So it all gets a bit stunted. Employers are almost saying, well, we kind of want to help you, but there's no mechanism to help you. And then, of course, or talk is cheap as well, because people are going, yeah, yeah, well, we want to help you. We'll sort it out later on. Then it gets to two years down the line and the contractor says, well, yeah, can you help me? And the employer goes, well, yeah, but you don't actually have any contractual entitlement. So, hey, ho, what are you going to do? So the question is, is that, you know, do we have to look at how that idea of contractual entitlement changes? And maybe that, you know, maybe we look at risk in to say, well, it's not risk that necessarily sits with the contractor, but there's a risk allocation. So almost all risk is taken away from the contractor. So they don't get paid for that. And that risk, I mean, if it's risk that they can affect and it goes to their margin, then maybe they take that. But actually bigger risk. So, for example, you know, obviously there's a lot of conversation about how we deal with COVID going forward or 
the net COVID, you know, COVID-22 or COVID-24 or whatever the case may be. Well, how do you deal with that? You don't want to pay a contractor up front to deal with it because, you know, you, you, you've got no idea what you're going to be doing. Contractors can't price the risk for it in the way that arguably they probably did or in, in contractually did uh, pre-COVID. So they can't really realistically do that because it won't make anything viable. So employers have to make sure that they've actually got ring fenced or the ability to pull a call on a pool of money to be able to deal with that or have some kind of um, route to be able to release financing for that that then not necessarily the amount but the fact that that kind of eventuality is ring fenced and made clear so all parties going in know that an event like this or material cost increases i mean just look at material cost increases in the good old days it was not uncommon to have especially in periods of high inflation so, you know, you go back to the 80s, 70s and 80s um, and contracts would have material price fluctuation provisions in them because the contractor said, we've got no idea what the materials are going to be priced in six months, in two months, let alone, you know, in six months. And this project's going to go on for two years. Now, that was a good way to do it because everyone understands the risk and, and, and it's balanced out. And obviously the employer goes into it. Yes, there's a risk on them, but they know that they have to ring fence that. Now, what happened? post the 80s, kind of into the 90s, employees, their funders started to say, well, hang on a second, why are we doing this? We don't want to do this. Just pass it all on to the contractor. And then, okay, they'll obviously build something into their prices, but if they get burnt, who cares? Because it's their risk. And now what we're seeing is contractors just can't deal with it. And you just don't get capital projects, generally, with price fluctuation clauses. But in my mind, we should do, because it's not something that the contractors can influence it's not really something they can manage so why is it a risk that goes on to them you know so that's the sort of thing that actually i think we should be doing carving out because ultimately the employer should then be able to carve out and ring fence the amount that the contractor would have allowed also potentially with the avenue to be able to get some more from funding but that's how they have to price the job i mean they, they have to go into this project understanding that actually there may be a fluctuation of prices above that. But of course, there may be a fluctuation down in, in which case they then keep the benefit from that. So it's a bit of a win-win potentially. So that's the kind of thing that we need to think about going forwards. So almost kind of going back to where we were in the 80s, we're back now in very, very high inflation now, certainly in the UK and wider afield. So why aren't we bringing that sort of thing? You know, you just don't seem to get that kind of provision on lump sum contracts because we seem to have gone circle back down to effectively financiers saying well i don't really care even i i don't even mind if i spend a bit more i just want to know exactly what i'm spending which is driven by money markets which don't like management of risk they just want to say well how much are we going to pay um and then you guys go off and, and deal with it but ultimately as i mentioned that's then what constrains the the contraction models that we've got so unless that changes then that's a problem. What we are pretty good at doing as a sector is understanding risk, is managing risk. There's a lot of information, a lot of very, very smart sets of analyses out there that are pretty good at understanding risk, certainly delivery risk. Yes, there are always going to be some things that sit outside that. So there must be a way that we can take all this, this knowledge, this information, and really, rather than kind of go around in that project delivery cycle, feed that up into the funders to say, look, this is what we need to do. You need to understand that actually these are the risks. So you guys can ring fence some of that 
And then what that does is that allows the contracting society to set up much more collaborative kind of collegiate way of doing things. But of course, the finances will then look and say, well, OK, but there's a risk that the amount of money I'm going to pay is going up or down. But then people who understand risk can say, well, OK, but that's a 5% risk. It's not a 50% risk. So again, you could then price that into your funding models. Do you see what I mean? So it requires, similar to the, the Sydney Water thing, a kind of root and branch review of, of the whole process. But it's the perfect opportunity to do it. You know, we, we're changing everything else. Why not change that as well? I was going to add on to that by saying what you are saying and what you are suggesting seems intuitive to me. So even if the finance sector is a bit of a late bloomer, the fact is there, there is this opportunity to change. How do we encourage this change? I think we need to really adjust how we focus our attention on risk mitigation. So how do you suggest we, we make these changes? I think we need to start having a bit more of a conversation about the reality of the situation. You know, I get involved in a lot of contracts, a lot of um, energy contracts, especially in the renewable sector, that just don't seem to me to be particularly sustainable. And I just wonder what conversations are had at all levels of the supply chain in respect of that. I I actually think it's the sort of thing that it might be useful getting the government involved in because, you know, look at this as a almost analogous to uh, what happened in the UK construction market uh, in the 90s with the Latham report, where there was a, a kind of a, a wholesale review of what was happening in the UK construction market. And it was recognised that actually there were lots of failings in, in the sector in respect of risk being inappropriately apportioned in the fact that there wasn't that flow of cash going through the the, uh, the sector. And, and when you don't have that flow of cash, what it means is that, you know, these risks that we're talking about and the, the risk management, parties aren't able to deal with them. They're not able to bend and flex with the flow of, of stuff as it comes because they're constrained and they have their hands tied. So in the 90s, the, the Laven report was, was issued and it really set out the failings or, or areas for improvement in the UK construction market. I'm seeing a lot of echoes with the UK construction market at that time with big portions of the energy sector now. What came out of the Labour report was a UK government review and ultimately it brought in legislation. I mean, it brought in the Construction Act, which did a couple of key things. One was in relation to payments and the the, the respect of making sure that, for example, you know, pay when paid, contracting, kind of went out the window for construction work, not for energy work, which was a real boon to the sector. So it wasn't a case that, you know, one party could say, well, I'm not going to pay you or I'm going to pay you a portion of what I owe you because I've not been paid it. No, that's not how it works. You know, if you owe something, then you pay it. And that, that creates that flow. And when you've got that creative flow, then the, the sector, is, it's, it's resilient, it's more sustainable, it's more robust. And naturally, you will get a lot of benefit from that in respect of how risks can be delivered, managed and weathered. Uh, and of course, the other thing it brought in, this was a little bit more controversial, we won't get into this discussion now, was the, the issue of a statutory right to adjudicate, which again, was all developed around that idea of, of just getting things moving, getting money 
moving through the process because it was recognized that actually when you when you've got that money moving through that's what creates resilience that's what also creates innovation and all these other bits and pieces so that was quite a good example where you had a sector that was not doing brilliantly in respect of a large part of its structure it was looked at from a from a governmental point of view and then change was enacted quite significant change was enacted to a lot of benefit, and you can say what you want about education, but you know, generally on the whole, it's a very, very good thing, uh, and certainly the the whole payment provisions. So, I just wonder whether something similar. Now, obviously, you know, this 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 is a kind of global view, so it's difficult to get a global approach on it. But on a national or regional view, whether we need to look at that, you know, there's a there's a huge growth in renewables or the change to, the, to you know the development of hydrogen in different jurisdictions and i think that it wouldn't do any harm to lobby and to discuss with government to try and put some structures around it which then will put to bear the idea of potentially how the the financing side looks at things because it might then make them feel a bit more relaxed about being a bit, a bit more flexible or being a bit more creative as to how amounts can be released. And then obviously that will flow through the developer employer level and then through into the contracting and the supply chain, which I think that's that's the way you could do that. So if you combine that with a, a real discussion, and there are forums out there, but I think there needs to be more. I think there needs to be more forums of contractors, developers, financers all together, because I appreciate they're probably they obviously speak within their groups a lot. I wonder how much interaction there is across all three levels and the supply chain underneath that as well. So parties properly understand the practical issues that contractors, developers, finances are actually facing because everyone's got their own tensions. Everyone's got their own interests. Everyone's got their own push and pull factors. And unless you can understand and properly appreciate the other person's position or the other three, four people's position, then it's very difficult to get any kind of consensus because everyone's just shouting and banging the table for their own thing. Whereas ultimately, it's probably a system where every party has to either concede or change the way they do something, but you're not going to get to that point unless you have a conversation with, with everybody. So it sounds a little bit caring sharing, but ultimately it's what we need to do. And going back to the point we said before, this is, you know, it's perfectly set up to do that now because of the the wholesale change we're going through. And there are discussions in that that mode, you know, they are happening. But I think we need to accelerate or expand those conversations a bit more and maybe a bit quicker. Some sound advice. Thank you, Charles. Uh, I feel like we could speak for hours on this and perhaps this shouldn't be the end of the conversation. Uh, we need to foster these these collaborative relationships and the conversation even further. And like you said earlier, go back to basics. Uh, and that's never a bad thing. Uh, Charles, thank you for sharing your insights. It's been absolutely illuminating. I have learned so much and I'm sure that our listeners have too. Any quick concluding thoughts before we, we finish up? Well, I'd just like to say thank you for inviting me, Pam. It's been really, really nice chatting with you. Uh, and it's and it's something that it's great to be involved with this sort of thing, you know, because it, it is such an exciting time. And we, as a sector, are going through huge change, really, really exciting change, you know, and, and is very much being embraced by everyone involved. And it's worth bearing in mind that, of course, you know, energy has never been 
quite so much on everyone's lips as it has now, you know, in the public sector as well. So it's great to be involved in this sector. We're going through amazing changes, but I think there's still a long way to go. There, there really is a long way to go. You know, we, we can't rest on our laurels and think, well, that's it. We're just going to build a load of wind farms and, and then move on. You know, clearly not just even just from a technical point of view. You know, I can see even now I, I look at the sector now and I think, well, yeah, we're going in a good way, but we, we seem to be building up a bit of a bow wave in respect of the trouble that's around the corner. Uh, because there are a lot of problem projects at the moment and, and for various reasons. I'm not convinced that they're just going to go away. I think they're going to compound. So if we don't grab hold of this issue of proper risk management, then that's going to be problematic for, for the sector. And we're not going to get the development at the speed, at the quality that we should all get and that we should all deserve. It really is crucial. It's no good to the sector for projects to be failing, for contractors to be struggling financially and to be going out of business, because again, that will that will then have a knock-on effect and make it even harder going on as well. So lots to do, lots and lots of positive actions, but we've got to make sure we don't take our foot off the gas, so to speak, or the electric pedal as it is now. Well said, Charles. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it has really been fascinating. And uh, I'd like to thank our audience for joining us today. And please uh, do feel free to join us next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast, brought to you by Enlit and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time. <laughs>